Chapter Ten of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Ten, British Abandoned Colchester. On Tuesday, tenth September, the Daily News published the following telegram from its war correspondent, Mister Edgar Hamilton, Chelmsford, Monday, September nine. I sit down after a sleepless night to indict the account of our latest move. We hear that Sheffield has fallen and our troops are in flight. As, by the time this appears in print, the enemy will of necessity be aware of our abandonment of Colchester, the censor will not, I imagine, prevent the dispatch of my letter. For our move has been made one of a retrograde nature, and I do not doubt that the cavalry of the German Ninth Corps are close behind us and in touch with our own but I must not, in using the word retrograde, be supposed to criticize in any way the strategy of our generals. For everyone here is, I am sure, fully persuaded of the wisdom of the step. Colchester, with its plucky little garrison, was altogether too much in the air, and stood a great risk of being isolated by a converging advance of the Ninth and Tenth Corps of the German invaders, to say nothing of the Twelfth Saxon Corps at Malden which, since the unfortunate Battle of Purley, has shown itself very active to the north and east. The Saxons have refrained from attacking our Fifth Corps since its repulse, and it has been left almost in peace to entrench its position from Danbury to the southward. But, on the other hand, while not neglecting to further strengthen their already formidable defences between the Blackwater and the Crouch, their cavalry have scoured the country up to the very gates of Colchester. Yesterday morning the 16th Lancers and the 17th Hussars, who had fallen back from Norwich, together with some of the local yeomanry, moved out by the Tolshunt Darcy and Great Totham Roads, and drove in their patrols with some loss. At Tiptree Heath there was a sharp cavalry engagement between our Red Lancers and several squadrons of a sky-blue Hussar regiment. Our people routed them, but in the pursuit that followed would have fared badly as they fell in with the four remaining squadrons supported by another complete regiment, had it not been for the opportune arrival of the Household Cavalry Brigade, which had moved northeast from Danbury to cooperate. This completely changed the aspect of affairs. The Germans were soundly beaten, with the loss of a large number of prisoners, and galloped back to Malden in confusion. In the meantime, the Second King's own Royal Lancaster Regiment and the 5th Battery RF Artillery had been sent down to Witham by train, whence they marched up to the high ground near Wickham Bishops. They and the yeomanry were left there in a position to cover the main London road and the Great Eastern Railway, and at the same time threaten any movement of the enemy by the Great Totham Road. When the news of our success reached Colchester, soon after midday, we were all very jubilant. In fact, I fear that a great many people spent the afternoon in a species of fool's paradise, and when towards the evening the announcement of our splendid victory at Royston was posted up on the red walls of the fine town hall, and outside the cups, there was an incipient outbreak of that un-English excitement known as mafficking. But this exultation was fated to be but short-lived even though the mayor appeared on the balcony of the town hall and addressed the crowd, 
while the latest news was posted outside the offices of the Essex Telegraph opposite the post office. The wind was in the north, and about 5.45 in the afternoon the sound of a heavy explosion was heard from the direction of Manningtree. I was in the Cups Hotel at the time arranging for an early dinner, and ran out into the street. As I emerged from the archway of the hotel I distinctly heard a second detonation from the same direction. A sudden silence, ominous and unnatural, seemed to fall on the yelping jingoes in the street, in the midst of which the rumble of yet another explosion rolled down on the wind, this time from a more westerly direction. Men asked their neighbors breathlessly as to what all this portended. I myself knew no more than the most ignorant of the crowd, till in an officer who had rushed hastily by me in Head Street, on his way into the hotel, I recognized my friend Captain Burton, of the artillery. I buttonholed him at once. "'Do I know what those explosions were?' repeated he in answer to my inquiry. "'Well, I don't know, but I'm open to bet you're five to one that it's the sappers blowing up the bridges over the star at Manningtree and Stratford St. Mary. Then the Germans will have arrived there?' I inquired. "'Most probably. And look here,' he continued, taking me aside by the arm and lowering his voice. "'You take my tip. We shall be out of this to-night. So you'd best pack up your traps and get into marching order.' "'Do you know this?' said I. "'Not officially, or I shouldn't tell you anything about it. But I can put two and two together. We all know that the General wouldn't be fool enough to try and defend an open town of this size.' with such a small garrison against a whole army corps, or perhaps more. It would serve no good purpose, and expose the place to destruction, and bring all sorts of disaster on the civil population. You could have seen that for yourself, for no attempt whatever has been made to erect defenses of any kind, neither have we received any reinforcements at all. If they had meant to defend it, they could certainly have contrived to send us some volunteers and guns at any rate. No, the few troops we have here have done their best in assisting the Danbury force against the Saxons, and are much too valuable to be left here to be cut off without being able to do much to check the advance of the enemy. If we had been going to try anything of that kind we should have now been holding the line of the River Star, but I know we have only small detachments at the various bridges, sufficient only to drive off the enemy's cavalry patrols. By now, having blown up the bridges, I expect they are falling back as fast as they can. Besides, look here, he added, what do you think that battalion was sent to Wickham Bishops for this morning? I told him my theories as set forth above. Oh, yes, that's all right, he answered, but you may bet your boots that there's more in it than that. In my opinion, the general has had orders to clear out as soon as the enemy are preparing to cross the star and the Lancasters are planted there to protect our left flank from an attack from Malden while we are retreating on Chelmsford. "'But we might fall back on Braintree,' I hazarded. "'Don't you believe it. We're not wanted there. At least, I mean, not so much as elsewhere. Where we shall come in is to help fill the gap between Braintree and Danbury. I think, myself, we might just as well have done it before. We have been sending back stores by rail for the last two days.' "'Well, good-bye,' he said, holding out his hand. "'Keep all this to yourself, and mark my words, we'll be off at dusk.' Away he went, and convinced that his prognostications were correct, as indeed in the main they proved, 
I hastened to eat my dinner, pay my bill, and get my portmanteau packed and stowed away in my motor. As soon as the evening began to close in, I started and made for the barracks, going easy. The streets were still full of people, but they were very quiet, and mostly talking together in scattered groups. A shadow seemed to have fallen on the jubilant crowd of the afternoon, though as far as I could ascertain, there were no definite rumors of the departure of the troops and the close advent of the enemy. When I arrived at the barracks I saw at once that there was something in the wind, and pulled up alongside the barracks railings, determined to watch the progress of events. I had not long to wait. In about ten minutes a bugle sounded, and a scattered assemblage of men on the barrack square closed together and solidified into a series of quarter columns. At the same time the volunteer battalion moved across from the other side of the road and joined the regular troops. I heard a sharp clatter and jingling behind me, and, looking round, saw the general and his staff with a squad of cavalry canter up the road. They turned into the barrack gate, greeted by a sharp word of command and the rattle of arms from the assembled battalions. As far as I could make out, the general made them some kind of address, after which I heard another word of command, upon which the regiment nearest to the gate formed fours and marched out. It was the second Dorsetshire. I watched anxiously to see which way they turned. As I more than expected, they turned in the direction of the London road. My friend had been right so far, but till the troops arrived at Mark's Tay, where the road forked, I could not be certain whether they were going towards Braintree or Chelmsford. The volunteers followed, then the Leicestershires, then a long train of artillery, field batteries, big four-seven guns and howitzers. The King's own Scottish borderers formed the rear guard. With them marched the general and his staff. I saw no cavalry. I discovered afterwards that the general, foreseeing that a retirement was imminent, had ordered the 16th Lancers and the 7th Hussars, after their successful morning performance, to remain till further orders at Kelvedon and Tiptree respectively, so that their horses were resting during the afternoon. During the night march the former came back and formed a screen behind the retiring column, while the latter were in a position to observe and check any movement northwards that might be made by the Saxons, at the same time protecting its flank and rear from a possible advance by the cavalry of von Kronhelm's army, should they succeed in crossing the river Star soon enough to be able to press after us in pursuit by either of the two eastern roads leading from Colchester to Malden. After the last of the departing soldiers had tramped away into the gathering darkness through the mud, which, after yesterday's downpour, still lay thick upon the roads, I bethought me that I might as well run down to the railway station to see if anything was going on there. I was just in time. The electric light disclosed a bustling scene as the last of the ammunition, and a certain proportion of stores were being hurried into a long train that stood with steam up, ready to be off. The police allowed none of the general public to enter the station, but my correspondence pass obtained me admission to the departure platform. There I saw several detachments of the Royal Engineers, the mounted infantry, minus their horses, which had already been sent on, and some of the Leicestershire Regiment. Many of the men had their arms, legs, or heads bandaged, and bore evident traces of having been in action. I got into conversation with a color sergeant of the Engineers, 
and learned these were the detachments who had been stationed at the bridges over the star it appears there was some sharp skirmishing with the german advance troops before the officers in command had decided that they were in sufficient force to justify them in blowing up the bridges in fact at the one of which my informant was stationed and that the most important one of all over which the main road from ipswich passed at strafford st mary the officer in charge delayed just too long so that a party of the enemy's cavalry actually secured the bridge and succeeded in cutting the wires leading to the charges which had been placed in readiness to blow it up luckily the various detachments present rose like one man to the occasion and despite a heavy fire hurled themselves upon the intruders with the bayonet with such determination and impetus that the bridge was swept clear in a moment the wires were reconnected and the bridge cleared of our men just as the germans reinforced by several of their supporting squadrons who had come up at a gallop dashed upon it in pursuit the firing key was pressed at this critical moment and with a stunning report a whole troop was blown into the air the remaining horses mad with fright stampeding despite all that their riders could do the road was cut and the german advance temporarily checked while the british detachment made off as fast as it could for colchester i asked the sergeant how long he thought it would be before the germans succeeded in crossing it bless you sir i expect they're over by now he answered they would be sure to have their bridging companies somewhere close up and it would not take more than an hour or two to throw a bridge over that place the bridges at Boxted Mill and Nayland had been destroyed previously. The railway bridge and the other one at Manningtree were blown up before the Germans could get a footing, and their defenders had come in by rail. But my conversation was cut short, the whistle sounded, the men were hustled on board the train, and it moved slowly out of the station. As for me, I hurried out to my car, and, putting on speed, was soon clear of the town and spinning along for mark's tay it is about five miles and shortly before i got there i overtook the marching column the men were halted and in the act of putting on their greatcoats i was stopped there by the rear guard who took charge of me and would not let me proceed until permission was obtained from the general eventually this officer ordered me to be brought to him i presented my pass but he said I am afraid that I shall have to ask you either to turn back or to slow down and keep pace with us. In fact, you had better do the latter. I might indeed have to exercise my powers and impress your motor should the exigencies of the service require it. I saw that it was best to make virtue of necessity, and replied that it was very much at his service, and I was very well content to accompany the column. In point of fact, the latter was strictly true for I wanted to see what was to be seen, and there were no points about going along with no definite idea of where I wanted to get to, with a possible chance of falling into the hands of the Saxons, into the bargain. So a staff officer, who was suffering from a slight wound, was placed alongside me, and the column, having muffled itself in its greatcoats, once more began to plug along through the thickening mire. My position was just in front of the guns, which kept up a monotonous rumble behind me. My companion was talkative and afforded me a good deal of incidental and welcome information. Thus, just after we started, and were turning to the left at Mark's Tay, a bright glare followed by a loudish report came from the right of the road. "'What's that?' I naturally ejaculated. 
"'Oh, that will be the sappers destroying the junction with the Sudbury line,' he replied. "'There's a train waiting for them just beyond.' So it was. The train that I had seen leaving had evidently stopped after passing the junction while the line was broken behind it. "'They will do the same after passing the cross line at Widham,' volunteered he. A mile or two further on we passed between two lines of horsemen, their faces set northwards and muffled to the eyes in their long cloaks. "'That's some of the sixteenth, he said, going to cover our rear. So we moved on all night through the darkness and rain, and with the first glimmer of dawn halted at Widham. We had about nine miles still to go to reach Chelmsford, which I learned was our immediate destination, and it was decided to rest here for an hour while the men made the best breakfast they could from the contents of their haversacks. But the villagers brought out hot tea and coffee, and did the best they could for us, so we did not fare so badly after all. As for me, I got permission to go on, taking with me my friend the staff officer who had dispatches to forward from Chelmsford. I pushed on at full speed. We were there in a very short space of time, and during the morning I learned that the Braintree Army was falling back on Dunmow and that Colchester Garrison was to assist in holding the line of the River Chelmer. Notice. Concerning Wounded British Soldiers. In compliance with an order of the Commander-in-Chief of the German Imperial Army, the Governor-General of East Anglia decrees as follows. 1. Every inhabitant of the counties of Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Cambridge, Lincolnshire, Yorkshire, Nottingham, Derby, Leicester, Northampton, Rutland, Huntington, and Hertford, who gives asylum to, or lodges one or more ill or wounded British soldiers, is obliged to make a declaration to the mayor of the town or to the local police within twenty-four hours, stating name, grade, place of birth, and nature of illness or injury. Every change of domicile of the wounded is also to be notified within twenty-four hours. In absence of masters, servants are ordered to make the necessary declarations. The same order applies to the directors of hospitals, surgeries, or ambulance stations who receive the British wounded within our jurisdiction. 2. All mayors are ordered to prepare lists of the British wounded, showing the number with their names, grade, and place of birth in each district. 3. The mayor or the superintendent of police must send on the first and fifteenth of each month a copy of his list to the headquarters of the commander-in-chief. The first list must be sent on the fifteenth September. 4. Any person failing to comply with this order will, in addition to being placed under arrest for harboring British troops, be fined a sum not exceeding twenty pounds. 5. This decree is to be published in all towns and villages in the province of East Anglia. Count von Schoenberg Waldenberg, Lieutenant General, Governor of German East Anglia, Ipswich, September 6, 1910. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.